Well, good day and welcome to the online ministry for St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Inverell. My name's Matt. Uh, this ministry has been prepared for Sunday, the 16th of April, 2023. As we begin, let me open with these words of scripture from Psalm 66. Make a joyful noise to God, all the earth. Sing to the glory of his name. Give him glorious praise. Well, praise is a little bit of a theme for today for us. And so let's begin by praising him now. Praises tell, come 
creatures here below Praise Him above ye heavenly host Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost Well, as we come to the ministry of God's Word, now let me pray our collect prayer for the day. We pray, God our Father, may we look forward with hope to our resurrection. For you have made us your sons and daughters and restored the joy of our youth. We ask this through Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Well, our Bible readings today are begin in the Old Testament with Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through to 8. Then our psalm for the day is Psalm 14. And our New Testament reading comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through to 20. Uh, pause the video, have a read of those now, uh, especially take note of Psalm 14, because that's what I'll share with us from in just a moment. Take a moment, read those. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask simply that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand your word, and lips to respond with praise. Amen. Well, in 1908, the London Times, they asked a whole bunch of authors to respond in writing with an answer to this question. What is wrong with the world? I wonder, if you were were asked to respond to that, how would you? What is wrong with the world? Have a think about it. Now, there are, of course, a whole lot of different ways we could take that. Uh, Perhaps some of us might say the thing wrong with the world is discrimination and and inequality. Uh, Perhaps it's wars and terrorism, maybe poverty, perhaps environmental issues, right? Things that uh, happen because we don't look after God's world. Or maybe some of us would say it's corruption and, and abuse of power. There's a list that could go on and on, isn't there? But the, the author of Psalm 14 here, he actually thinks that there is a simple answer to that question. And it's something we're going to sit with today. And as we open up Psalm 14 now, we remember that the Psalms, the Psalms, they do act a bit like a mirror for us as we read them. They show us not only about God, but about ourselves. They tell us what he is like and what we are like. And so as we read this part of scripture, we need to ask as we read it, how is this meant for ancient Israel? How, how are they meant to read this for themselves? And after we've done that, we can ask then, how should we read this as people who live this side of Jesus? Now, as we start reading verse 1, it might be tempting for us to switch off. It might be tempting for us to say, I know the kind of person he's talking about, verse 1, and it's not really me, so I'll wait and I'll come back when, when it is me. But I think what the psalm writer is talking about, who the psalm writer is talking about here, rather, it might surprise you. And so let's have a read of this together. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so we read this and we say, yep, I know who he's talking about. He's talking about atheists, people who don't believe in the existence of any gods. But in the ancient world, atheism, especially like we know it, didn't really exist. It wasn't really a thing. 
See, every culture, every society, if we look around at ancient Israel's enemies, they all had their own national or geographical gods. And today we have smart guys like Sam Harris and uh, Richard Dawkins who push a particular brand of atheism, but that's not the kind of atheism that this psalm is talking about. As we look at this verse again, we notice that the psalm is not saying with his mouth, but rather he's saying in his heart. As we keep reading the rest of the psalm, it's clear that what verse 1 is talking about is not a kind of intellectual atheism with good reasoning. No, it's actually a practical atheism that's lived out in our hearts. The kind where there may still be a belief in God, but where life is lived without much consideration of him, or where there's not much room for him in a person's heart, maybe. And in your Bibles, if you've got an NIV, you'll see that there's a footnote there on verse 1, because the word fool, it's not talking about whether someone is smart or dumb. No, no, fool here is a moral category. Now, to be a fool, according to the author, is to be someone who is morally deficient. And we see that that's true as we keep reading uh, the psalmist's comments here at the rest of verse 1. He says, They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. That's a pretty damning appraisal from the psalm writer. No one who does good. We might think, well, it sounds a little extreme. I'd rather actually hear what the loving God would say about us. Let's go to God's view. And so we, we do, but be careful what you wish for. Verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Right? It's the kind of picture like the boss, he pulls up at the work site and he rolls his window down to take a look at all the, all the workers and see what they're up to. But here, God is actually looking down. Right? He has the vantage point. He has the, he has the best position. And now forever, uh, whenever in the Old Testament, uh, it talks about God looking down on people to assess them. It's usually not good findings. All right, we saw one of those in our Old Testament reading from Genesis 6. Uh, when God looked down at the time of Noah, did what he saw make him happy? No. No, he was grieved with the sinful heart of men. And his appraisal in verse 3, well, we end up with exactly what David saw in verse 1, what he concluded. But notice in, this, in his conclusion, verse 3, God's conclusion, it's no longer uh, singular. Not like David in verse 1 talks about the fool, or he talks about they, the wicked people. They are corrupt. No, no. God's scope is universal. God looks down. What does he see? Verse 3, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. All right, this includes all of Israel's enemies. It includes Israel themselves. It, of course, includes King David. We know of his moral failures. But it includes us as well, me and you. Now, I open by asking that question, what is wrong with the world? And in 1908, when the London Times asked a bunch of writers to respond to the question, what is wrong with the world? One man, or one Christian writer named G.K. Chesterton he replied in this way. Dear sirs, regarding your article, What is Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. This is a man who understands the nature and extent 
of sin in our lives. Who understands how this heart attitude from verse 1, how it affects every one of us. The thing that's wrong with the world, it's not discrimination. It's not wars. It's not terrorism. It's not poverty. It's not environmental things. It's not corruption and the abuse of power. The thing that is wrong with the world is creation living out of sync with its creator. It's you and I as we foolishly hold back areas of our lives as if God is not Lord there also. It's falling into the trap of thinking that that we know better than the one who made us, the one who rules the world. Now you would have noticed uh, in our New Testament reading in Romans 3 that Paul there echoes the words of this psalm. And Paul puts it this way. He says, Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Why is this world suffering? Why is this world broken? Well, it's because of us. We are the problem. We shouldn't read verse 1 and be quick to think, well... What the fool says in his heart, that's not how I think, so it's not me. No, no. We need to sit in the reality of what this psalm is saying to us, what it means for us. Because verse 1 has been, and to varying degrees, will continue to be us at different points in our lives. When it comes to what is wrong with the world, we are not part of the solution. We are part of the problem. Of course, there is a solution coming, but before we get to that, we need to understand the awful, the awful truth about our sin before an almighty God. And whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, as you watch this, we need to ask ourselves what parts of our lives are lived as if God is not Lord over it, as if God is not looking down from heaven, as if what we do is not an affront to his holiness, his goodness and his rightful rule over our lives. Now, it might be something that's open. It might be something between you and someone else, the way you speak to them, whether in person or online. The areas that you live without God as as ruler might be behind closed doors in the comfort of your living room. Or it might be behind even more closed doors where no one sees you at all. Now, if we reflect on our lives and on what Psalm Psalm 14 is saying for us, hopefully... Hopefully we'll be honest enough to let G.K. Chesterton's response to the London Times be our response as well. What is wrong with the world? We are. I am. And if you don't think that's right, you can take that with God. Take that with God. I mean, these, these are his words here. This is what he says as he looks down from heaven. Now, as we read this, these first three verses, it feels like a pretty, uh, pretty somber place to start, doesn't it? Right? Both the psalmist and God, they declare that all people are universally broken. But if that's the case, uh, what do we make then of verses four to six? Because there, fresh off this damning appraisal of all people, the psalmist starts talking about God's people, about those who are righteous. Right? What are we to make of that? Well, let's keep reading and see. Uh, now, verse 4, it opens up with a bit of a statement question. Now, I think it's still uh, still God's voice at this point, uh, not least of which because uh, in the next line he says, my people. 
But you can see the question he's asking there, or the statement question he's putting out. Verse 4, do all these evildoers know nothing? Now, what do you normally expect if someone says, do you know nothing? Right? If I was to, if I was to say, you can't feed sugar to kids right before bedtime, do you know nothing? Right? You would expect that I would then give you a few examples of when that has gone wrong in the past. And that's exactly what happens in verses 4 to 6 here. Now, God and the psalmist together lay out an example that shows the foolishness of living in that verse 1 way of life. Now, in the second line of verse 4, God starts reflecting on a specific group of people who fall into that kind of wicked category. Now, the evildoers he mentions here appear to be one of the ancient enemies of Israel. Uh, In the second line of verse 4, he says, They devour my people as though eating bread. Now, ancient Hebrew poetry, it's usually full of uh, visual images for us to help, uh, to help us see and feel what the, uh, what the writer is seeing and feeling. And I think that this image, for me at least, is one of the most striking ones of all in this psalm. See, the treatment of God's people that's being compared with a loaf of bread that you tear apart with your hands and then grind together with your teeth. Right, it's a pretty clear picture of oppression. And it comes at the hands of people, we're told, who don't acknowledge the Lord. Verse 5. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. And so, whatever historically here is going on for them, there is some sense in which the oppressors of God's people become aware that he has his people's back. And then similarly, in verse 6, you evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, But the Lord is their refuge. God is their protection. He is their comfort, even as bad things are happening. Now reading this, I think the natural question for us is to ask, what time in Israel's history are they talking about? What's this experience? Now, we could speculate on on when it is, on what's going on here, uh, when a nation's practical atheism against the the, the Lord of the earth, the Lord of Israel, their God, And when these people came face to face with the fact that God is powerful and God is presently with them. When was it? It might have been as the Israelites came out of Egypt. It might have been as King David himself was standing before Goliath and the oppression of the Philistines. It could have been one of those times. It could have been another occasion. But we're just not given all the details to know. And I think that ambiguity here is actually a good thing. Because then God's people throughout the centuries are able to read this and reflect on how it is still true in their lived experience. How it can be still true in our lived experience. But the point of this kind of unknown example is that God is not impotent. God does care about justice. God does care about the way people live. And he will hold wicked people to account. Now, If for a second we start to think or we start to live like that is not true, then like the evil-doing enemies of Israel, then we know nothing. Now God was present and sovereign with his people throughout history. He acted in judgment against their wicked oppressors. And so the Israelites knew, they knew that refuge couldn't be found in running away from God or ignoring him. No, refuge could only be found in running to him. And this is a reminder for us. That God holds all people 
wicked people, which is all of us, to account for our sin. It's a reminder that forgiveness is only found as we run to him. Now, the great uh, Christian writer C.S. Lewis once said that in the end, the face, which is either the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each one of us, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. Or living under God, one of those two is a fate that we will each face. But up to this point in the psalm, for us, we have a double problem. It looks as though we are destined for that incurable shame. Because we are not only part of the problem of evil in the world, but we know that God will hold evildoers to account. And yet, in what we've read, there's also a glimmer of hope in these words. Because even amongst the backdrop of, of universal corruption, at the time, at that time in history, God still chose to call a group of people, my people. It shows us a glimmer of his grace and gives us hope. And it's out of that hope that the last verse, verse 7, David prayer, David's prayer comes. And as we go there now, I want you to see that this is a hope that we can rejoice in. Now, looking around and seeing the misery of a world that denies God and living in the moral chaos, in verse 7, David cries out, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Right, this is a prayer of longing. He's longing for the Messiah, the king who God will set over the nations, the promised king from Psalm 2 who will turn up and set things right and bring about justice in the world. And you can see that David prays with confidence as well. He finishes, When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. He doesn't pray if the Lord does it. He prays, prays when the Lord does this. And when it's seen, he says, let the people be joyous and full of praise for him. Now for Israel, for ancient Israel, these words of the psalm are ones that they could sing in joyful expectation. And for David, this was only ever an expectation. He never lived to see the day. He never lived to see God perfectly answer his prayer here. But we have. David knew the promise. But we know its fulfilment. And for us, that fulfillment, of course, comes in Jesus. Although we are the problem, Jesus is the answer. He is that source of salvation in this psalm. Now, remember how, how Romans 3, Paul there echoes the words of this psalm uh, in affirming that there is no one righteous. Well, come with me now and see the answer to this dilemma in Romans. Come with me to Romans 3 and see the way that God uh, what God has done to, to deal with our heart problem. All right, Romans 3, picking up at verse 9, Paul begins that section by saying, there is no one righteous, not even one. He ends that section, verse 20, by saying, no one can be declared righteous by obeying laws, right? That is, we are not good enough. It's not possible for us. And so he continues on, verse 21 and 22 of Romans 3, but now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith 
in Jesus Christ to all who believe. He's saying, in the death of Jesus, our sin has been dealt with. God does not and will not overlook sin, our wrong, our rejection of him as our Lord. But in taking my place, Jesus bore the wrath of God that I deserve. He was given the consequence for my sin. And if my faith is in him, then in turn I am given his righteousness. Can you see the way that this emphasizes God's grace? He doesn't say that this grace is earned. No, he says it's given. He doesn't say that it's by merit. No, he says it's through faith for and for all who believe. And the object of that faith needs to be Jesus Christ, the one who died for us. And Jesus is the answer to King David's prayer in this psalm. Jesus is our salvation. He's the one who does that restoring of God's people that verse 7 in this psalm looks forward to. In this psalm, we see the rich and eternal purposes of God saving unworthy sinners like us. Now, like ancient Israelites, we too are people of God's grace. But we are people who have seen the extent of that grace as it's realized in the death of Jesus. Do we realize how sinful we are? Do we realize what our salvation cost God? And do we see how magnificent his love is for us? Now for us, as we read, as we finish by reading this psalm, uh, reading at this side of Jesus, uh, here's a quick tip as you read psalms. A quick tip is to ask, how is this psalm being either something that can be sung to or sung by Jesus? How can it be sung to or sung by Jesus? Now, How would Jesus have read Psalm 14, these words of promise that start in lament and turn to praise? How would he read them? Matthew 9 verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. And knowing what is in each person's heart, Jesus would be reading these words, looking around and saying, there is no one who does good. There is no one righteous. These are people under the power of sin. Oh, that they would have a shepherd saviour. And then putting his hand up himself, he says, I will take their place. I will be that saviour for them. And so in John 10, 11, we find Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so the big takeaway for us as we read this psalm is to see how much we need a saviour. But we won't long for a saviour like David did until we see our own sin like David did. And I want to finish by saying that if we have grasped the enormity of our sin, the gravity of it, but also grasp the amazing extent of God's love and grace to us in Jesus, how could we not respond with rejoicing and gladness in our lives? And so for you, what does it look like? And what could it look like for you to keep surrendering your life to him and keep rejoicing in his goodness at each moment of the day? If Israel 
reading this, were to be filled with rejoicing and gladness at the promise of God's salvation, then how much more should we be filled with rejoicing as we live and experience its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus? Let us rejoice. Let us be glad. Because the Lord has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Amen. Well, I think it's fitting now that we do that, that we go to another time of praise together. As we come to a time of prayer, uh, in a moment that blue screen will pop up. There'll be some of those generic things to be praying for, for us uh, as a church or for you, wherever you are. Uh, And don't let that be the extent of your prayers. Please be praying for things that are happening in your life, things you're seeing go go on around the world, because the Lord is God. The Lord is God. He is sovereign. He has all things in his hands. He hears the prayers of those 
who are his people who call out to him. And so let's be committing things to the Lord now. Uh, After a time of prayer, we'll then finish in another time of praise. As we finish now, let me read to you a few sentences from the start of the letter to the Ephesians. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms 
with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Our friends, the psalm today, Psalm 14, has been a reminder of who we are before God. Uh, But it's also a pointing forward to his great promises and his great love for us in Jesus. Uh, Be encouraged and remember these things this week. See you next time.